Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a Triad production. I'm your host, Dr. Graham Taylor, and with me today is Dr. Jana Martin. Jenna is the CEO of the American Insurance Trust, a provider of malpractice insurance and other products for psychologists and allied healthcare professionals. Jenna's clinical experience includes many years of work in hospitals and mental health clinics, as well as independent practice in which she worked with children, adolescents, and adults. Today's podcast is part one of a two-part series focusing on one's private practice. In today's podcast, we'll be addressing the nuts and the bolts of early stages of setting up one's private practice. In part two, we're going to be addressing the thoughts and considerations, the nuts and the bolts of regarding planning for retirement in one's life. Jana, welcome to the show. So nice to have you back. Well, thank you, Graham. It's always a pleasure to be with you and to share information together. It's great to be together. You know, I've known you, as we were saying earlier, about 20 years now, and I've had the privilege of working with you and seeing you in various roles in our field. Take us back to what brought you into this field and maybe some of the things along the way that you were experiencing early on in your career. I'd be happy to. I really enjoy talking about this because I think it helps people to look backwards and think about what does help them in their career. So for me, I had a lot of blessings growing up, including two very loving parents. My father, however, didn't have that advantage when he Mm. was growing up. Mm. He grew up in a children's home for immigrants, and he suffered many losses and abuses. Mm. But somehow, He managed to overcome all that he had been through, including the war. Mm -hmm. Daddy never forgot what he went through, and he dedicated his life to helping others who were suffering like he did. And he ensured that our family dedicated our lives and were aware that our responsibility was to help others. It was also our privilege. So his resilience and his ability to get through trauma made me very curious about How do people survive things like this? And how do they thrive without being bitter or without getting stuck while others aren't as successful, aren't as resilient or able? I was raised in the Presbyterian church and my thoughts of being a minister were so I could help people thrive, especially children. But my desires to understand behavior drove me to many psychology courses Mm -hmm. so that I could figure out what was going on. Then I realized, Graham, while my original thoughts were I wanted to be a minister, and I also wanted to be a stand-up comedian, by the way, (laughs) uh, but my thoughts about being a minister were I probably wasn't going to find these children, young people that I wanted to help in a church. And so that's what led me to the profession of psychology. You know, that's, I appreciate you sharing that story. What a story of your dad. Yes. What a, what a, what a legacy he's left. Absolutely. And I love that idea as just being human beings, our responsibility and our privilege to help others. It's, it's both, isn't it? It's our responsibility, but there's a privilege in that process. There, there had to be some takeaway lessons in that, that you've gathered over the, over the years of your practice and that responsibility also within the context of the privilege that we get to have as practitioners, what are some of your takeaway lessons? Yes. Well, certainly one of the things that I I have benefited from is that, and I've loved, by the way, being a psychologist, I wouldn't change it for the world, but the power of relationships, the power of trust, 
the human spirit, no matter how downtrodden or beaten down it might be, and the idea of the power of psychological healing, yes. it's very difficult to talk about what that really is until you're in the room with someone, Agreed. until Agreed. you go on that journey yeah. with someone and see and assist and support. And so for me, mm. I've been incredibly grateful mm. to my clients and patients that I've had the pleasure to join them on their journey. Because I think there's so many things that we can do in our profession as mental health practitioners that really are immeasurable, but internally yeah. you feel it and you benefit from it as a clinician. You know, it's it's a it's a rewarding career in, in that you know that we talk about the vicarious trauma. You know, I've done a show on that before, but we also talk about vicarious resilience. This idea where as practitioners, we we have to hold a lot in order to help people and usher them and steward them through very difficult times until they can integrate it That's in right. a way where they can both tolerate journeying with it in a different way without being so sensitive and traumatized by it. But in that process of holding it with and for them at times, they grow and they expand immeasurably. And you don't know it until you're in there. And the takeaway for us too is what you're talking about is the is the resilience that we also gather from those times and we Absolutely. grow from those times. Absolutely. Yeah. It's pretty special. You, it you is. talk about uh, too your education and some of your internships and give us some experiences there as well as maybe shifting a wee bit now, as we come into practice ways that we can be thinking about using our education, our internships, mm -hmm. even some things about learning about our self-care as we yes. come into our private practice as early career practitioners. Sure. Well, I'd love to start with self-care, if I might, because I love think that. that that's not a course that you take in graduate school, <laughs> no, unfortunately. No. And sometimes you learn too late how important self-care is. Yeah. And I think as I look over all of my experiences, the area that I could have used a lot mm -hmm. more help in and a lot more training in was self-care. Yeah. I eventually stumbled upon it because I was exhausted. You know, I had right. uh, two young children, a husband, I had volunteer commitments, I had all of this. And right. I finally learned a little trick, Graham. I was so bound by my appointment calendar for all of my clients yeah. that I decided that I needed to schedule myself I love it. into my appointment book. Yeah. And especially when my children were very young, uh -huh. I scheduled in the very last hour of my day for Jana. And you put your name in there. I did. Oh, absolutely. Because right. otherwise right. I wouldn't have kept that appointment with her. Right. Right. <laughs> so, right. and I had stocked my, my private office with a little refrigerator and a microwave. And you know, Graham, you've been a parent, you are a parent, but you right. were a parent of young kids. When you're a parent of young kids, you don't get any food that's just for you. <laughs> uh, and so it's just a snack and even a snack. And so I would make sure that in that last hour that I would go and get a snack I had magazines in my waiting room That's that so I good. wanted to read too. I'd That's get a magazine, take my shoes off, put my feet up yeah. and uh, relax so that I could then transition better so from the clinic to home, because that's another piece yeah. that I think a lot of young clinicians don't think about. You can't take this stuff home and you can't just drive through it 
because yeah. you know you're paying attention supposedly uh, yeah. to driving. So setting aside some time that's dedicated to you where you can deep breathe or whatever right. works for you before you go to your other responsibility so you can be as whole and complete a parent, a, a spouse, a partner yeah. or volunteer that you possibly can. I, I think, think that's a, I, I think that's a great nudge, you know, for those out there listening regardless of how long we've been doing this, but particularly our early career practitioner, you know, colleagues, that that self-care is essential. You, 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 have to, you have to regroup and you've got other responsibilities in your life. I don't think I took in the early stages quite as good a care as you're describing you taking care of yourself. But I remember coming home sometimes and sitting in my, in my garage, turning off the car and closing the door and just breathing and focusing for a little bit because I knew that I had to walk in the house and I needed to be dad. They didn't want the psychologist. They wanted dad to come in and just say, how was your day and wrestle and pick them up. We all have responsibilities for other roles that we're in and we can't just blame work or I'm tired. We can't do that. That's right. And it's, you know, it's, we, we talk a lot about to clinicians about setting boundaries with your clients or patients, yes. but we don't understand that that's multidimensional. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it's you like, have here, take to, my advice because I'm not going to use it. Well, that's right. I, that's I, right. It's setting boundaries yeah. between you and your professional work so that your that's professional right. work has all of you and your personal life has right. all of you. It, it's just important to kind of straddle those fences well. And I'll, I can't resist being in risk management saying to you yes. that it is extremely good risk management to do self-care. That's a good reminder. Yeah. Once you engage in self-care, you are less likely yeah. to be impulsive in therapy, to be distracted, to forget what your ethics are, yeah. what the focus of this client is. You are a better therapist because you have done self-care. So if you can't convince yourself to take care of yourself because you're worthy enough, then try. It's good for your professional practice for you to use good risk management and self-care is good risk management. I I appreciate you bringing the research into that. If you can't do it because it's the right thing to do for yourself, you don't see yourself as worthy or valuable. Do it for your profession and those that are coming to see you. So you reduce the risk of somehow harming them, even if it's unintentional. So I, yeah, I I appreciate that piece. How how about, so the self-care piece, how about some of the business aspects of running one's practice and some early considerations in this, uh, in this phase? Yes. Well, again, for me, the best way to talk about it is through what I did that worked. I wouldn't share things that didn't work. (laughs) Uh, And there were a lot of those. And I think there's a lesson there that people need to remember that you're going to try a lot of things that may not help your practice, but that doesn't mean that there's not something out there that will. So don't give up. Just keep trying. Just keep talking to other mentors. And I think that's one key recommendation I would make. Find someone or several someones that you can learn from who have been in practice. Take from them what it is that worked for them. But then remember that it's important for you to integrate what worked with them for what your personality and style and maybe theoretical orientation, what your thoughts are. Because whatever approach you adapt to building your practice, 
It has to be consonant with you. It has to be genuinely yours. So I'm a very curious person. That's always been one of my characteristics for better or for worse. And so I started thinking about how can I compete with all of these other psychologists and therapists that are in my same building? Why are some people going to come to my door instead of somebody else's? What's the best approach? Now, of course, this was before the advent of telepsychology, but I think that this still relates because some people are probably going to have brick and mortar practices plus telepsychology practices. So what I decided to do was I had to figure out first, where's my office going to be? And is it connected to public transportation? Is it convenient to get to off the freeway? And I would go to different offices and then I would practice in my car. How would I give someone directions to get to my office? And if it was too many and a left here and a right there, and then you swing over this curve, then I wasn't (laughs) going to get that office. Uh, So finding a great location that you can describe that's easy for people that has plenty of parking, because you don't want people to come in so frustrated to the session Mm. about parking. They don't talk about what's going on elsewise. So finding uh, a good location and mentors can help you with that as well. And then I thought, well, okay, how can I make myself known in my community? Mm -hmm. So I got in my car, I I got a map first, and I drew kind of a 25-mile radius, and I got in my car, and I drove through the neighborhood that I was in, and as I would come to a business, I would pull over off the side of the road, and so, for example, let's say there was a dentist office not far from me, I'd pull over, and I'd say, okay, what goes on in a dental office and how might psychology help? And so I started thinking, well, they have their own patients and most of their patients have significant others that bring them and there's difficulty billing. They're angry, upset patients. There are patients in pain with anxiety. I can help with that. There are these training programs. They are connected to parents. My specialty was with children and teens. Okay, I can help with that. So I tried to think of what goes on in this building, this church, this temple, this community center, this business complex, Mm -hmm. and how can I help them? So then I'd go after I took my notes, I'd finish my driving around, I'd go back to my office and I would create Here's what I can do. Okay, so I'm going to contact this dental office and I'm going to say, I'd like to introduce myself. You know what? Do you ever deal with angry patients? I can help with that. Anxious patients, I can help with that. And I'll tell you what, it worked. I bet it did. The other thing I did, and if you work with children, and then this is helpful. I joined the PTA in my my neighborhood of the school mm-hmm. where my kids would go before my kids were even old enough to go to school there. And so, of course, people thought I was kind of weird because, you know, everybody was, oh, my kid has so-and-so. And I'd say, well, my kids aren't here yet, but they will be in a couple of years. They were kind of like, okay, fine. And so as I listened, they began to talk about, well, who's going to be head of gift rep sales? Uh-uh, I don't want to do that. Uh, who's going to be in charge of playground equipment gathering? No, I don't want to do that. And finally, I raised my hand and I said, do you have a health committee? And they all looked at me like I was crazy. And they said, well, no, why would we need that? And I said, well, why wouldn't you? I explained why they wouldn't. I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. If you'll create the committee, I'll head it. And what I will do is 
six free parenting workshops here at the school and anybody can come. I won't charge for it. And they were like, the principal said, really? And I said, oh yeah, oh yeah, I'll do it. Well, Graham, it was, it was wonderful. So I did the very first workshop. I had 200 people attend. Yes. And I want you to know that I did that for 14 years. Did you I really? did it. I did it before my children started and after my children finished at this oh, school. That. But what it did was it connected me. Mm-hmm. My name got spread around. Yeah. So suddenly I was getting phone calls from other schools. Hey, we will pay you to come to our school. <laughs> and I would say, well, I also come and observe in the classroom. I see clients in therapy and my practice just took off. And before I knew it, the school where my kids went, they said, would you like your own column in our newsletter? Yes. Did they really? You. Yes. Oh, that's so great. When they decided to build a website, Dr. Jana's Corner. Oh, I, I had my that. own site on the website. Wow. So it's all about figuring out mm-hmm. what's around you. How can you educate people yeah. about how psychology or mental health training or therapy can improve their lives, their yes. work. Yeah. And it, it's just a wonderful way to start building a practice. I love the way you were so intentional about that. Uh, I mean, there's some really replicable steps as our listeners are listening in on this. They can do the same thing. Yes. They can get on their bike, they can get in their car, they can drive around, see what business is there. And they can think about where is my training? You know, right. where, where am I really good? And what do I really love? What's my passion? You know, That's find right. the things you love to do. Never work That's a day right. in your life. That's right. And, and you just get to give. And I, I remember I, I had a professor, he said, you know, just find what you love to do, practice ethically, work hard and kind of, he, I want to say this with a little bit of a caveat. He was saying, give it away. Yes. And yes. when you do that, it comes back it does. in, you know, fourfold. And, and, yes. and it just it just does because what it goes back to what you said earlier. We have a responsibility and a privilege of being able to help other people. And this is how it can be done. So I That's love those right. steps yes. of being able to do that. You know, yes. I know I want to talk about two things. Sure. One is when when a, a practitioner comes into the field early on, we all have some of the fears of, you know, can I really do this? And am I really, you know, am I really good at what I do? On the other side of that is those that are well-meaning and earnest and also wanting to get their practice started, they might take on some challenges that might be outside the scope or the areas of their competence. So we have those that are kind of doubting themselves a little bit. And on the other end, those that might be a little, God love them, a little too cavalier, but they're coming in that could put them at risk too. Talk to both sides of those, the imposter sure. piece and maybe the other part of sure. working within I'm, one scope. I'm happy to talk about that. You know, the imposter syndrome is, is something that all clinicians go through at one time or another. They yeah. may not be as aware of it, or they may push it away and be in denial, but it's a normal, natural thing. This is not a, a diagnosis. This is just a part of becoming a professional. So yeah. the best thing to do again is to have a mentor or mentors or associate yourself with other professionals. You can do that through your local, state, or national professional organization. Yes. Yes. Get to know people there who share your professional interests. And so talk about your feelings, but also follow your own guidance that you would give to a client. What do I do well? What, what do I know I do really well? And let me write that down so that when I go into that self-doubt, I can pick up that, that yeah, notebook good. 
and I can look at it again. That's good. But also, one of the things, and this sounds kind of contradictory, but one of the best ways to defeat imposter syndrome is to appropriately acknowledge what your weaknesses are. You bet. Where, where are your skill sets lacking? And how do, you, how do you increase them? What can you do about it? Or do you say, that's just not an area of practice I want to go into, and that's yeah. okay. Yeah. But I want to reiterate how normal it is to think about, what if, I, what if I'm over my head? Well, one of the things that we say where I work at the trust is consult, consult, consult. Mm -hmm. It's very important for you to have a consultation group, not when you need it, when you think you need it, because then it might be too late, so to speak, but get a consultation group right away. That way you're listening to other professionals, exactly. their yes. struggles. You hear them say, I don't know what to do with this client. Yeah. I'm not sure how to handle this. And you can share there too and learn if you're in a group that you've got each other covered. Yeah. Then you can say, what do you see my skills as being? What I think that's do you so good. It's, it's, it, it, it's really kind of a mirroring process, isn't it? Yes. Yes. And you're talking about, and it's a natural thing. It's, you know, our, our, our professional identity is a developmental process. Yes. Much like a child's development where the parent and child, they can, you know, the parent gets to mirror to the child, how they see that's them right. and who they are. And the, the, the child gets to integrate that. That's right. And so I think seeking that consultation, we have a, a colleague and I run a group for some early career professionals and about seven of them. And it's about the very thing you're talking about where they're forming this identity. And I think the consultation, consultation, consultation is one of the best ways to form that professional identity, have somebody who's senior seasoned to be able to say, here's what I see in you. And here's some areas where you do need to grow. And here's some areas we need to be cautionary. Or here's some areas where I just see you knocking it out of the park, That's you know, right. good for you. I remember you're talking about kind of write down to what you're good at. Yeah. I've never told anybody this, but I used to go back and I used to read my evaluations from my grad, my, from my doctoral program Wow! as, as I was starting my private practice to remind myself that, okay, they see me as good. It was kind of another way of mirroring, of you know, of course, excellent and, and, idea. and it, it just kind of grounds you in yes. what you hope is going to be the truth when you're seeing the people that you're seeing. Yes. 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 How about on the other side, maybe well-intentioned earnest might get a little bit, you know, like over their head, like you're saying on that yes. side. Yes, and certainly that's dangerous from a risk management perspective. Sure. When we begin to think, well, you know, I'm, I'm really good. Look at how full my practice is. Well, right. that's not really an indication of how good you are. That's an indication of how comfortable people feel with you. But how comfortable people feel with you and how skilled and, and expert you are as a mental health care practitioner can be two different things. And so don't get too comfortable in the fact that your practice is thriving. It may be that you need to make sure that it's not just your practice that's thriving, but that your professional development is thriving. Okay. Where, as you said, it's a developmental process. Mm -hmm. We all should constantly be hungry for learning more. Yeah. You're never done in this profession. Thank right. goodness. You're That's never right. yes. done. Because they're everybody, every patient, every client you see is unique. They bring a whole different set of circumstances. Mm -hmm. They may have the same diagnosis, but they've got a different background, yeah, different more story. simplistic, more complex. Right. And to be always there for your client as an individual mm -hmm. client, 
not just as a member of your caseload. This is a real person. And so what do I need to learn, get better at, practice for patient A, patient B, patient C, not just as a clinician. You need to think about it in terms of who walks in your door, what do they need from a good clinician, and how can you get as close to that as you possibly can? Jen, I want to grab that. I, th- you know, in some of the consultations that I've done and the things that were, I was, when I had supervision that I really liked, and I actually have a, a note, a, a section on my notes now is that what does this person need from me? Right. In other words, who do they need me to be? It's, it's, it's not a manufactured or a fake role. It's, it's a role that I can take on or something that I need to be intentional about that they need from me uniquely that they can't get from anybody else or they didn't get. Right. And in that, in answering that, we get to provide them right. with those corrective emotional experiences that That's they get right. to grow through and out of and expand their ability. So I, I, I really, I really like that. We'll be right back after word from our sponsor. Behavioral and mental health professionals provide critical support to our communities in a time when our communities need it more than ever. But they need support too, to continue their education, to connect with colleagues, and to advance their career. And so we've launched Triad, the hub for behavioral and mental health professionals. At Triad, you'll find education, community, and career resources for both current and aspiring behavioral and mental health professionals, all curated specifically for you and all for free. Visit us at hellotriad.com BHT to register for your free professional account. Again, that's hellotriad.com BHT. Come join the community today. You know, in terms of the business starting out and some of the nuts and the bolts and in your position as CEO with the trust, how concerned should practitioners be in becoming acquainted with and confident in their professional liability and malpractice insurance? Yeah. You know, this is something that I see as, uh, as something that folks figure, well, somebody else is taking care of that for me. Right. And I will admit, uh, I was not as good at understanding what my coverage was as I should have been. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, being in the business and seeing what cases come forward and how they're reimbursed and what's covered and what's not, it's made a preacher out of me in some respects. I'll walk up to total strangers and I'll say, do you know if you're covered for such and such? Uh, <laughs> um, but you got that pastoral piece still in your that, That's exactly so that's, right. That's and you you and hopefully that comedian too. You know? right. <laughs> uh, but uh, so I think assuming that there are questions you don't know that you should ask and finding someone who can help you know what those are. But I'll I'll give you some some cues on on some things. So what kinds of things do you need coverage for? Because not all coverage is the same. There are what we call exclusions in policies. And so you may think, well, I've got a policy. It's from a great company, so I'm covered in whatever I do. No, not necessarily, because some policies, coverage is tied to whatever your particular state's definition Mm. of practice is, while other policies are much broader in scope. 
than what your state licensing law says. So for example, we know that other policies, not the trust, but other policies do not cover psychologists or clinicians who work in prison environments as consultants. And so if that's an exclusion, but you don't know an an exclusion, then that can be dangerous for you because you, yeah, yeah, exactly. I think the other thing is most people assume that, okay, I'm working for an agency and I I was told that one of my benefits is I'm covered under the agency's policy. Good reminder. Well, of course you're covered under the agency's policy, but the question is, do you know for what the limits are? Is it, is it a hundred thousand a year or is it 300,000 a year? Is is, is the, are the costs of the attorney's fees, do they bleed off of the damages? So for example, you've got $300,000 in coverage, but you're found guilty and you have to pay uh, $500,000 and you find out that attorney's fees were $200,000. You've only got $100,000 worth of credit. So then the rest comes out of your pocket. So looking at what is it that is covered Do I have enough coverage? And so we recommend that if you work for an agency and you're under a group policy, find out what the details are about that. And then think about whether or not you would be better off with your own coverage. Because let's say you made a misjudgment and and the hospital that you work with or the agency, they're going to hire their attorneys to defend you. But do you think you're their number one priority? That's right. No. 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 <laughs> the hospital no, or the agency is. Right. And, and the attorney works for the hospital or agency. If you have your own individual policy, mm-hmm. in addition, you have your own attorney yeah. who will make sure that things aren't swept under the rug and you're not left out. You're not left in the dark with, well, this was this person's fault and we right. want to get out with minimal damages. So Jenna, yeah, I, I so appreciate this because this is the business of the business, you right. know, that we don't oftentimes consider for those out of curiosity, for those early career practitioners, is there kind of a, a recommended coverage that they start with or that is kind yes. of an entry level? Tell me about that. Well, so, so we usually recommend base and the, re, the reason we came to this number is because we see how much things cost. Okay. And of course, the legal system's very ex- expensive. And I think it's good for people to know that you could have a malpractice claim filed against you in yeah. 2022, and it may not go to court till 2027. And so legal costs are building all through that. And so we usually recommend uh, 1 million individual, 3 million aggregate. And what I mean by aggregate is that in a period of time, let's say a year, if that's what your policy uses as a period of time of coverage, that you could have several different claims and the most that would be covered would be 3 million. But each individual action would be covered at a maximum of a million. Got it. Now, Graham, some states require a higher some states dictate how much coverage you need to have. There are some states right mm. now that are requiring a minimum of 2 million individual and 4 million aggregate. So mm. you have to know what the state that you're in requires. That's so helpful. This kind of goes then to we are responsible as part of the business of the business to be reading 
our policies and what's being provided. If, even if we're working for an agency, make sure that we have an understanding of that. In terms of the insurance, let's let's kind of just maybe kind of wrap this topic up around insurances. On the other side of this is about disability insurance or life insurance or office overhead. These are this is part of the business of the business too. Talk about that part. Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up because you know when you're just starting out, you've got a limited amount of money, yeah. and we hear all the time, "Well, I if I can save seventy eight dollars and not get this policy, <laughs> then you know I'll get it later. I'll get it later." So there are some very important coverages. I think probably the aside from malpractice for your professional life, the most important would be life insurance. Because when you're young, you don't think about dying. Uh, You don't think about leaving your family or debts or whatever uh, uncovered because you think you're going to live to be 100. But we know that unfortunately that doesn't happen. So think about having appropriate coverage that if something were to happen to you, your loved ones would not have to worry about where money would come from. And we can, in our company, help people guesstimate what that is. That's good. And and the younger you are when you apply for life insurance, the cheaper yeah. it is yeah. and the less ordeal it is, yep. unless you've got some kind of chronic illness. That's right. Then really second- good. Second would be disability insurance. If, if you were to become disabled, then how are you going to pay your rent, your bills? If you're not able to see patients or clients, where's your income going? Yeah. And disability kicks in in coordination with whatever state benefits you might have. But without it, you could really be at a great loss and, and maybe have to declare bankruptcy. Yeah. So, and you don't, and I'll tell you, and this may surprise you, but one out of four disability cases are in people younger than age 50. And so it's it's something very important for people to think about. And then office overhead, and this yes. would apply whether your office is in your home, although yeah. there's a little bit of a different kind of coverage for that, or in your office. Let's say that you were unable to work, your building burns, or it's condemned or something, but you're still going to have to pay that rent. You're still going to have to pay all of those extra expenses. And so office overhead helps with paying some of those bills. Now, if you have a home office, you have to check with your homeowner's insurance Mm -hmm. for what they call umbrella coverage, because if you don't insure your business within your home, your home insurance won't cover your computers, your software, all of those kinds of things. So speaking to someone who's knowledgeable about insurance and what's best is important, but let's not forget that these things protect not just our practice, but they protect our own livelihood and our families. And we know that's important. You know, when we do therapy with folks, we set the frame first, you know, ideally, what, you know, what are you coming in to see me for and how we might work together. And then we talk about, you know, the frequency of our meetings, cancellation policies, no shows, things along those lines, what we're looking to get. And so we, we, we set that frame ideally very clearly kind of like a corral, if you will, so that we can be free to do the work we're going to be able to do. And we get to watch any deviations from it as part of the therapeutic process. But that, that framework is much what you're talking about right now for the ECPs coming in, set this framework first, find where you want your office, drive around the neighborhood, talk to different businesses, 
talk about your liability, whether it's disability or you know malpractice. Get these things in place first. Be very intentional. Then you're free and safe to go practice. I love That's this right. encouragement. Yes, yes. I really yes. like that. You know, I know we're kind of coming to a little bit of a close in this today. We're talking about being vulnerable, and and uh, I think one of our greatest you know growths as practitioners comes from comes from our willingness to be vulnerable in the confidential sharing of our work, let's say with a trusted colleague or in consultation and supervision, would you be willing to share an area in your work when looking back, you say, you know, man, this might've been my clinical error for me. And, and maybe what the takeaway was for you. Sure, sure. Well, I'd like to share too, if we have time. <laughs> oh, we got time. Uh, one of them was, this was very early on in my career. And as I mentioned, my, my specialty focus was children, adolescents, and families. Okay. And I was working with a family that was, the, the couple had sp- split up, separated. They were trying to make it work, so they weren't sure if they were going to have a custody battle or whatever. And I saw everybody in the family. All, both parents were involved. All of the children were involved. I had proper permission uh, from the parents to see the children, something you always have to be careful about. But the attorney for one of the parents asked me if I would write some of the strengths of his client, who was one of the parents. And that's the way he framed it. Just tell me what some of the strengths are. And so I'm thinking, well, sure, I can do that. And early on in my career, the word attorney or a phone call from an attorney or a letter from an attorney was pretty intimidating. And so I thought, well, okay, I I probably should do this. Well, fortunately, I was in a consultation group for part of my own professional development, and I brought this up in my, in my group, of course, without identifying any of the clients. Sure. And I said, so I'm thinking this is, this is something I can do. One of the more seasoned clinicians that was in the group said, uh-uh-uh, be very careful, mm-hmm. because you didn't ask the attorney how he or she's going to use it. Good point. And uh, you should have done that, and you still can, but you're not a custody evaluator. And attorneys in custody litigation will use whatever they can to try to make their parent look better than the other parent. That's right. And it's a significant violation if you are made to look like you're endorsing one parent over the other without doing a proper evaluation of each parent. And I was, I was like, oh my goodness, right, my I career almost, you know, came to a halt, <laughs> you know, a, a quick. And, and so I learned from that and I, I made it, I made it a point then since I was going to be working with children and families where this obviously was going to happen. My job then was to learn all I could about custody evaluations and what are the some of the scary parts and I learned about it and I learned so much about it I actually became a child custody evaluation and evaluator and so so that helped so so that was one situation where I almost made a mistake but a consultation group saved me the other one was more of a self-realization. I, I had not had, again, this is early in my career, I had not had a lot of experience with couples, but I had been trained in it. I had seen in, under supervision couples, and I knew I wanted to work with children and families, but I got a referral from a trusted pediatrician who was a great referral source for me. Would you see this couple? Oh, sure, I'll see them. And so, you know, I, I did all of my usual homework. 
And I was listening to them in one session and I was sitting there observing them and I had kind of an out of doctor experience observing them. And I thought to myself, these people need a therapist. And then I thought, oh no, that's me. I'm (laughs) I'm the therapist. Oh no. And and so I, I got through that session and then I immediately sought consultation about, okay, what was that about? And, mm. and, and, and at that point, after I was able to transfer that couple to an experienced, much more yeah. experienced couples therapist, I, I decided that's not where my expertise Very is. Very good. Yes. So you have to listen to your gut. Yeah. You have to listen to what you're feeling and thinking. Have you right. have you kind of backed off a little bit? And if yeah. so, is that telling you something about your work or areas where you need strengthening? Yeah, I appreciate your vulnerability around that. And these are these are all things that any one of us can do. Absolutely. And experience being well intentioned, but I think being aware of ourselves and what's kind of motivating or driving us in that. Just as we're kind of winding down this section. This part one, I, I wonder if you could kind of maybe just give kind of some rapid fire, maybe some short-term goals for those coming into practice, the nuts and bolts piece, some short-term goals that they could be considering now that you would encourage them to be considering. Mm-hmm. Sure. So I think finding a mentor or finding mentors, yeah. connect with other folks that are experienced, begin to identify them. If you're a student or an ECP, as I mentioned earlier, yeah. joining some kind of professional organization yeah. is a really good way to identify potential mentors or folks who can help you in some way. So start doing that right now. I would, I would solo to just jump on that real quick. I would so encourage our ECP colleagues and even students to trust that those that are a little more seasoned than you so want to come into relationship with you more, more yes. than not that yes. they, they want to help out and they want to kind of help, you know, not necessarily parent, but help steward you through some of these things. Right. And they would love to be asked, just right. ask, trust right. it. Right. Yeah. What right. else? And then the other thing is, as I mentioned, figure out how you want to work. Do you Good. want to be a telepsychology practice? Do you want to be a brick and mortar or do you want to be both? And then make sure you know there's a difference between telepsychology practices and brick and mortar practices. Figure out what those differences are. There are resources like crazy, and I've provided some of them for you all to share with the listeners. So figure out what what works for me. And then the, the third thing would be put on a business hat. And if you don't own one, go get one. Think about how much money do I need to make? That's important. Most therapists are shy about making money because they're in this profession to help people. Well, there's the business side of it. There's nothing wrong with making money. This is your chosen profession. And so figure out how much money do I need to make my expenses and how many, what does that translate into in terms of what rate I'm going to charge, you know, whether or not I'm going to see six clients a day or four And then I think I would think about you don't have to just do one thing. So you can have an independent practice and you can see 10 to 15 patients or clients a week. But you know what? 
You can also do workshops. That's, That's another right. source of revenue. It uses another part of your brain. And it also builds your practice because you people bet. see you in the community. But you can also, maybe you love assessment, but you don't want to do it all the time. Right. Well, then dedicate a certain number of hours a week to doing assessments. Figure out how to do that. If you want to be an expert witness, then how do you get trained in forensic psychology? Mm. What can you do about that? What volunteer work? Please don't forget your whole life when you're planning this from a business perspective to make time for doing things that bring you joy, that then enrich you as a human being so you can be the best therapist that you can be. That's so good, Jenna. Yeah, those are such great points. You know, I know we're kind of winding down. At the beginning of our show, you referenced the power of relationships, speaking about the therapeutic relationship and having trust in the human spirit and that psychological healing is not just possible, but it's immeasurable. Carl Jung says, know all the theories, master all the techniques, but as you touch the human soul, just be another human soul. That's right. And I so appreciate kind of what you're saying, because I think you're touching, you know, us as, as listeners and those are going to be coming in. But I know for you, the power of connection is so very important. Yes. Yeah, yes, I so really appreciate is. that. Well, you know, I think certainly as a clinician, that's important, as you just outlined. When you're thinking about building a practice, it's also important. Yeah. I will tell you, uh, as you were saying, that it, the connections are very powerful. Mm-hmm. But keep in mind, you never know if someone that you meet today mm-hmm. will be someone who can forward your career tomorrow. Yeah, that's really good. Every really good. connection. And that's what's happened in my entire professional good. life. People that I met years and years and years ago that I never lost touch with. And I was careful about how I kept that relationship. Yes. They've called me back or they've offered me opportunities. And you know what? You and I are one of those examples. Agreed. I I totally agree. We've had that same, we've had that privilege as well. Just before I ask you for some resources, give our our listeners kind of a closing thought Mm -hmm. that this many years in your career, so many things you have done. I'm looking at you on the screen right now and I see all these plaques and certificates. I I know your career and it is deep and wide and it is outstanding. Give us a kind of a closing thought to those listening in today. Yes. Well, uh, while I could focus on what some of my favorite things have been and all of that, what I would close with, especially to folks who are just starting out in this career, you will hear a lot of people talk negatively about the profession of a mental health practitioner, whether it's a psychologist and MFT or whatever it is. I want people to know I have loved every single minute of being a psychologist. If I had it to do over again with everything that I know, positive and negative, I would choose this career all over again. And for these young clinicians, I envy you (laughs) and the journey that is ahead of you. It is a magnificent journey in which you are going to touch lives of others and be touched in ways you could never imagine. Yeah, I agree with that. We're so very fortunate to have the privilege to do this. Yes. And that is a privilege to be invited into and trusted into people's lives and to come alongside them. Yes. Yes. And uh, we are very, very fortunate. 
hey, as you know, and our listeners know, we're going to put a bunch of resources up on our page, but give us just the resource just audibly here for the trust and yes. uh, some resources you think our listeners particularly could benefit from. Sure. So our website is the best place to go and it's trustinsurance, all one word, dot com. And when you go to that website, we have a sections oh, for early career psychologists. Yes, I love it. Uh, we have risk management webinars. We yeah. have roundtables. We have telepsychology tips. Uh, we have consent forms. You're just starting out. You have no idea what forms to use. We give them to you. We so don't good. charge. That's so, so go good. to that. That's the, the best resource that I can recommend, obviously, because I know it the best. But there are also numerous textbooks that are available for people to think about building their practice. And I think the American Psychological Association website has a lot of wonderful resources. Agreed. Your state psychological association has wonderful, or your state marriage and family association yes. or social work group. They all have fabulous websites with resources. Really good. Again, those will be on our website and accessible to our listeners. But Jenna, it's been so great to be with you, my friend. Thank you so much for our show today. And, and we'll come back next time. My pleasure. Thank you so much. I also want to thank you, our listeners, for joining Jenna and me today. It's always great to have you with us. I'd like to encourage you to listen to the second half of this podcast series where Jana and I will be discussing thoughts and considerations, really the nuts and the bolts regarding planning for one's retirement. Regarding our episode today, I want to remind you that it and its resources and all of our other episodes can be found on our webpage at triadhq.com bht. So check out our webpage, triadhq.com bht and explore our archive of podcasts and resource materials. Thanks again for being with us on the show, and we'll look forward to having you back next time on Behavior Health Today. We appreciate all the support from our community, and if you like our show, one of the best ways you can support it is by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review. Behavioral Health Today is a podcast part of the Tribe Network, all rights reserved.